Have you ever been powerless? I came across the story of a gentleman who was working second shift, the 4 to 12 shift, and he had found that when he walked home at night, he could shave about five minutes off his time if he walked straight through a cemetery. He did that every single night until one particular evening, he came across the grave that had been dug and he didn't realize it. He fell into the grave and, and he spent the next 10 or 15 minutes trying to get out and finally he concluded there was no hope, I'm not going to get out. And he tried to make himself comfortable and he figured when the morning came, somebody would let him out. Well, it was about five minutes later that another gentleman walked much the same path and fell in exactly the same hole and had much the same reaction. But the first gentleman didn't say anything. He didn't want to startle him. And so the guy tried to get out and then finally the first gentleman said, you know, you can't get out of here. Amazingly enough, he did. <laughs> See, it surprises me that sometimes we need a crisis to really motivate us. But I fear we often have power that we don't take advantage of. Charles Haddon Spurgeon is maybe the greatest preacher from the 19th century. He pastored for a number of years in London. And you can read most of his sermons. They're in print today. And in one of those sermons, he shares a story that he was walking through the streets of London when he came across a young man who was swearing up a storm. Spurgeon approached the young man and said, I'm sorry, I'm just curious, do you pray as well as you swear? The young man said, pray? Why would I waste my time doing that? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And Spurgeon said, well, I have a proposition for you. He reached in his pocket and pulled out a gold coin. I will give you this gold coin if you promise that you will never, the rest of your life, ever pray. The young man thought, you idiot, he grabbed the coin and he walked off. And as he started to think back on it as the day went on, he, he didn't pray, he didn't understand the need for prayer, but what happens if he came to an unexpected situation? Was it really that wise to give up the opportunity in case he needed it? After work, he went home, and he was discussing it with his wife, who also didn't pray, and she said, how could you be so dumb? You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe someday we will need to pray. They talked about it for a while, and finally they decided they needed to go and see if they could find the gentleman who gave the coin and give it back. Spurgeon was waiting for them because this was his opportunity to share not just the power of prayer, but of the good news of the Jesus to whom that makes prayer possible. It got me thinking as I read this story, is there anything that I would take in exchange for the opportunity to pray? What about your life? I, I know that Daniel in the lion's den is maybe the, one of the most famous stories in all of the Old Testament. But the part that I think we often forget is the reason Daniel was in the lion's den. Because a law was passed that you could not pray for 30 days. And Daniel said, I'd rather die. I'd rather face the lions than go 30 days without prayer. Would you go 30 days without prayer? If it meant sparing your life? This morning we come to perhaps the most famous prayer ever prayed. Normally, I, I, I write out my sermons longhand on Thursday or Friday, and I, I, I sat down, and, and as I got in the office on Friday, my sermons are normally five to 7,000 words long, 
And I hadn't quite got to the request part of the prayer, and I was already at 8,000 words. And so it was my plan to, to simply try and cover this prayer in a single Sunday. I, I apologize. Unless you want to be here the rest of the afternoon, I think I'm going to fail. But the Lord's Prayer is, without question, the, the most prayed prayer. My guess is that the vast majority of you could quote it, and I don't even know if most of us spent time studying it. We just have said it and heard it and used it so many times. And so one of the great struggles with coming to a passage you're so familiar with is I fear, I don't remember a whole lot about high school chemistry, but one of the comments that my high school chemistry professor said often is one that sticks with me. He said, familiarity breeds contempt. When you think you know something so well, it's easy just to pass over it. And so I know it's going to be impossible, but could we at least try to pretend like we've never heard the prayer before? It's actually shared with us in two places. We're going to spend most of our time in the better known passage in Matthew's account, but Luke also shares it. Luke actually spends more time on Jesus' prayer than any other of the four Gospels. Luke will tell us that Jesus spent his entire night in praying the night he chose the 12 disciples. He spent his entire night praying on the night he was transfigured. He spent his entire night praying on the evening of his betrayal. In fact, Luke will say that often Jesus went off to desolate places to pray by himself. One of those situations was in Luke chapter 11. And Luke chapter 11 begins this way. Once when Jesus had been out praying, one of his disciples came up to him as he finished and said, Lord, teach us to pray. I know this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it was one that I, I, I just couldn't avoid. Do you know that the things you do will elicit questions from others? If you spend your whole life playing golf, talking about golf, thinking about golf, practicing golf, don't be shocked when somebody comes up and asks you about golf. I wonder, when was the last time somebody came up to you and asked you about prayer? I, I, I guess the reason I, I stopped there for a second is I, I know that many of you have lost a parent and, and it's an interesting experience to go through and it amazes me how often I, I suddenly find myself transported back to my childhood when something reminds me of something my dad did or said. This is one of those passages. Every single morning, I would get up, sit at the table, and eat my Captain Crunch or Lucky Charms or whatever wonderful cereal I was eating, but I had to do it quietly because I knew that my dad was in the living room, seated at his rocking chair with his Bible open on his lap and his head bowed in prayer. If I got up early enough, every morning in my life, I could watch my dad pray. I wonder, do people come up to you and ask, how should I pray? They came up to Jesus and asked him how they should pray, and he says, this is how you should pray. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. This is not exactly as it's stated 
in Matthew 6. And, and I would encourage you not to get too caught up in that because we clearly know this was not at the same time as Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get there in a second. This is on one particular occasion. And let's be honest, if you tell a story, now, most of you have been coming for a while and have probably heard some of my stories more than once. Do you come up to me and after telling this story and say, that's not exactly the same way you told it last time. <laughs> no, we just kind of expect that because this isn't Jesus saying these are the exact and only words that you can use while praying. No, I think what he's building for us is a pattern of how we should pray and what it is we should pray for. Now, now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't use this prayer as a prayer. I think one of the best ways to improve your prayer life is to take God's word and to pray through scriptures, whether it be the Psalms or, or last week a Paul or here in the Gospels. But Jesus is going to pray. And for a few moments, really all I want to do this morning is introduce the prayer to you, give you a little bit of background to the, the things going on around the prayer, talk a little bit about to who we pray. And we'll get to the request next week. But the motivation of the prayer, let me just take you back. It's in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount takes place in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's the greatest message ever preached. Jesus uh, comes on top of a mountainside. He sits down as rabbis would do in the first century. And he begins to teach. He begins with the Beatitudes. And he shares these incredible blessed are statements. He moves from there. And as he gets to verse number 17, he's going to turn to how can we possibly earn God's favor? And he's going to say, you have to be better than the Pharisees are. And so then he first turns to things that are typically characterized as unrighteous deeds. And he talks about things like murder and adultery and divorce and lying. And Jesus is going to say, it's not simply the act of murder that's the problem. For if you've been angry with a brother without cause, you have sinned. It's not just simply immorality, adultery that is the problem. But have you lusted after a woman who's not your wife? And Jesus is trying to help us understand that it's not just mere external activities. It's actually what goes on in our hearts that are the problem. And then he turns to what would have been deemed acts of righteousness. In the first century, if you take away the sacrificial system as Jesus came to, to replace the sacrifices, there were really three great acts of righteousness. Giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And, and thus Jesus turns to these three acts of righteousness and he introduces them all this way. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do this, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. His point is that the Pharisees were notorious in making certain that others saw their religious, their ritual, righteous activities. I, I am told that it wasn't uncommon in the first century for a wealthy Pharisee to hire a set of trumpeteers to follow him into the temple. And before he would set his offering down, they would all play to gather everyone's attention so that you can see what a large bag of coins I'm dropping in the offering plate. He's going to say, beginning in, in verse number 18 or 16, when he turns the subject of fasting, that in a world that didn't involve bathing on a regular basis because of the lack of water, the way you cared for yourself was to use oils and perfumes so you looked presentable and somewhat smelled presentable. The Pharisees, on the days they would fast, would go around with a somber look 
They would refuse to care for themselves so that you would know, oh, oh, this is his fasting day. And as there were regular scheduled hours of prayer, the Pharisees were notorious for being on the busiest street corners and praying loudly so that all would hear how amazingly righteous they are. But Jesus says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your father. Does that bring up a question in your mind? Why did Andy and I pray this morning? Is Jesus condemning praying in public? I actually have read about people who have taken this very seriously and have built in their homes a prayer closet that they go and spend time in. Now, before you conclude that it's wrong to pray publicly, remember Jesus did it numerous occasions. In fact, at the feeding of the 5,000, he will pray so that they know you and I talk, Father. I give thanks for this food. I would say that the location of the prayer is not nearly as important as the motivation of the prayer. I would caution us that whenever we do anything in public, there is always a huge danger in doing it so that others will be impressed by us. Whether it is praying or singing or speaking in public. And we have to be very careful to guard our house, our hearts, because if we're praying for the praise of men, the praise of men is all we will receive. And Jesus says that when you pray, please make certain your motives are proper, that your motives are to be in the very presence of the Almighty, not to impress others. But not only does he talk about the motivation of our prayer, in verse number seven, he throws in, and when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans. I, I, I don't know what that takes you to, but it takes me back to Mount Carmel. Do you remember the story as Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, and there's this grand confrontation on Mount Carmel, who can bring down fire from heaven? And the prophets of Baal, they begin to recite and to chant their prayers because they're convinced if they chant long enough, if they chant properly enough, that their gods will respond. Jesus says that it's not about the length of your prayer. In fact, as you study through the Gospels, you will find a number of times when really short prayers had amazing benefits. Remember the thief on the cross? He just says, forgive me. Peter, as he's walking on the water and suddenly realizes what he's doing, he begins to sink and he says, save me. But I think my favorite is back in the Old Testament. Nehemiah is an incredible book, and it begins in chapter 1. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. A cupbearer in ancient times was the one who tested the food of the king to make certain someone hadn't poisoned him. He was a very trusted person, and and Nehemiah's relative returns from Jerusalem, and he asks, how are things back home? And his relative said, things are in total disrepair, and it breaks Nehemiah's heart. 
And the bulk of chapter 1 is Nehemiah pouring out his heart to God over the state of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, Nehemiah is at work. And if you understand anything about the ancient world, you were not allowed to be in the presence of the king with a sad expression. Because the king would only conclude you either knew about or were planning an execution of the king. And it was a capital offense. Nehemiah is devastated by what he's heard. He enters the king's presence sad, and the king asks him, why do you look sad? And Nehemiah says, why shouldn't I be? Do you know how bad Jerusalem is? And the king says, well, then what is it you want? And then it simply says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. What? What did Nehemiah pray? He doesn't even use words. Didn't take very long because I promise you, had he paused at that moment, it would have been the last pause of his life. He prays to the God of heaven and then answers the king. There are times when the shortest prayers are the most important. Now, now, please don't hear Pastor Dan suggesting you shouldn't pray more than a second or two. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is it's not about the length of our prayers. What should our prayers involve? One of the things I have tried very hard to do getting the chance to, to open God's word is I don't like to share my thoughts if no one else echoes them. We've had about 2,000 years of Christian history, and if I come up with something new, it really scares me because usually new equals heresy. So I'm going to throw this out here. You can do with what you want. One of the things Matthew really likes to do is what I would call theological sandwiches. Is you come to the end of chapter 4, he ends chapter 4 with a verse saying that Jesus went from town to village preaching and teaching and healing the sick. As you come to the end of chapter 9, he quotes that same verse, and between chapter 4 and chapter 9, you have illustrations of Jesus preaching and teaching and healing. I think to some degree he does the same thing here. He begins in verse number 5, and he talks about prayer, and then he goes to fasting, and let's face it, fasting is almost always tied to prayer. It gives us extra time to pray, and then he goes to the treasures, and he goes to worrying, and then he moves on to how do we get along with people that we don't see eye to eye? Do we judge them? And then he returns to prayer. And he says, if you ask, it will be given. You seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Is it possible that what Matthew, what Jesus is doing is providing us, if you will, a prayer sandwich? What kinds of things do you pray about? My guess is it's about your treasures. Sometimes your lack thereof. It's about your worries about your health, about things going on in your life. It's about people you don't get along with. I have to wonder if Jesus doesn't include these because he recognizes these are the things we should pray about or these are the things we do pray about. And thus he begins with these six requests. If you look at them, we're going to get to the requests next week, but he's going to share with us these six requests. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive, have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Before we get to the actual requests, 
I wanted to stop just a second. Because I don't think we understand the radicalness of the recipient of our prayer. Jesus says we are to pray our Father. And I'm guessing because you're a 21st century Christian, you say, duh, what's the problem? We view Christianity through the lens of a triune God. As you come to the New Testament, it begins to be clearly developed that God exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was not commonly understood in the Old Testament. In fact, as you go back to the Old Testament, there are certainly hints. You can go to the very first chapter, and Moses is going to quote God saying, let us, who's this us? Who is this our image, our likeness? Who, who are you talking to, God? See, in a Jewish mind, the great prayer that began every day was the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. In fact, as the nation of Israel would go into exile, they would go in large part because of idolatry, and they lived in a world and a land where no other nation had a monotheistic idea of God. And as they go and they come back, one of the truths that they did learn was idolatry never becomes a problem for a Jew. They wholeheartedly embraced the Lord our God is one. Father? You mean God. Shouldn't we be praying to God? In fact, may I suggest the word Father was quite offensive? It's used 14 times in the Old Testament to speak of God, and all 14 times it speaks of God as the originator of creation. Jesus will use the term of God 165 times in the Gospels. And once it almost got him killed. In John chapter 5, there's this story, and we don't have time to go back to the story, but in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and he enters into this grand confrontation with the Pharisees. And chapter 5 is one of the greatest evidences of, of the deity of Jesus, as he will claim the three things that only God can do. Only God can give life, only God has the right to judge, and only God has the privilege of receiving worship. And Jesus is going to claim all three of those. As the confrontation ends up, we read, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I, I, I hope none of you, when you are praying our father, you are trying to make yourself equal with God. It was a radical idea to think that we could approach God as Father. And I hope you don't pass too quickly that Jesus calls him Father, and I call him Father. Which, as Paul will say in Romans 8, that makes me a co-heir with Jesus. If that doesn't blow your mind, I, I don't think anything will. But Jesus says we should pray, Father. Our Father? He means my Father, doesn't he? Aren't I supposed to pray my Father? 
What's this our stuff? Why does he use a plural word? I, I really truly believe one of the greatest struggles for we as 21st century Americans, we are so caught up in our individual rights. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights and we view and value individualism. It's a great political truth, but it has some real limitations spiritually. If you haven't figured out, today is the Super Bowl and a week or so ago, the greatest quarterback of all time announced his retirement. <laughs> Tom Brady announced that he was going to be stepping away. And Tom Brady has every individual record you will ever see. Most passing yards, most touchdowns, most completions, yada, yada, yada. But if you talk to him, the thing that he appreciates most is not his individual records but his team accomplishments. Because football is the prototypical team sports. In fact, one of the things that I have enjoyed listening to is to listen to his teammates talk about him. They all call him Tommy. And they will tell you how personable and how approachable and how much he was just one of the guys. And what made him so great is he understood that I'm part of a team. I win and lose as a team. I fear too many players don't get that concept, and it costs them. I fear too many Christians don't get that concept, and it costs us. God never intended us to be the Lone Ranger. He always intended us to live our lives in community, to bring people with us, and as we pray, it is a reminder that I need you as well as God. But the second part of our is it's personal. God is our Father. He's not some impersonal being out in heaven, wherever that may be, waiting with his finger on the smite button, wanting to give an excuse for him to torture us. No, he is our Father. Andy was sharing Gettysburg. I read a few years ago a story about a gentleman shortly after Gettysburg. His brother had died in Gettysburg and he was the last living male member of his family. His dad, all his brothers had been lost in the Civil War and he recognized this harvest was coming that his mother and sister would have a terrible time harvesting the crops and probably would be unable to do so. So he uh, approached his sergeant. His sergeant didn't give him uh, permission to leave. He went as far as to go to Washington and attempted to get into the White House, but the guard standing there simply turned him away. You don't have an appointment. Don't you realize the president has way more important things to do? And he just sent the gentleman off. And the soldier was sitting on a bench all by himself, obviously distraught when a little boy approached him. The little boy asked him what was going on and he unloaded on the boy, shared his entire story. And the little boy got up, stuck his hand out and said, follow me. The soldier took him by the hand. They walked back to that very same gate and this time the soldier didn't even ask them any question. They entered. They went to the, the door of the White House and there were two soldiers standing there and they opened the door for them. They walked right to the Oval Office and opened the door and standing around a table was Lincoln and several of his generals planning the next move. And the boy brought the soldier right up to the table when Abraham Lincoln looked up and said, Todd, I see that you've brought a friend. What's going on? Todd Lincoln 
the son of the president, had absolute right to enter his father's presence any time. We have the incredible privilege of entering the presence of someone infinitely greater than the president. We can enter God's presence because he is our father in heaven. I, I, I don't know, maybe some of you have had the privilege of sitting down one-on-one with a president. I haven't, and I'm guessing most of us haven't. But just use your imagination for a second. You receive a call on your way home from church, and it is President Biden saying, I, I'd really like to talk to you. I'm sending Air Force One to Cedar Rapids. Could you be at the airport at 8 o'clock tomorrow? And I'd like to meet with you Monday afternoon. You get on the Air Force One and you fly back to Washington, D.C. and ushered into the president's presence. I would hope you wouldn't treat it as having coffee with your best friend. Whatever you think of President Biden doesn't matter. There is an incredible weight of being president. I've never had the chance to enter the White House. I can't imagine sitting across the, the desk from the president. It would be an incredible honor, but one I would take very cautiously because he deserves my respect. A billion times greater, I have the chance to go into heaven because that is where God resides. And it is an incredible privilege. But he's not the big guy upstairs. He is the creator of the universe who holds your very life in his hands and deserves and demands our respect. In Sunday school, John is going through the book of Revelation and I think two of my favorite chapters are chapter four and chapter five. We don't have time this morning to go back there, but it paints this incredible picture of sights and sounds and smells that John can't even get on paper because he's in the throne room of God. And we are invited into his presence. And then he moves to his requests. I I would suggest there are six. Some would argue seven, but I'm going to stick with six. The the first is that we pray to hallow, to to holy God's name. We pray that God's kingdom would come. We, We are to pray that God's will be done. We're to pray that God would give us today our daily bread and to forgive us our sins and to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. We'll get there next week. But I did want to just close with two questions. Do you know the Father? I don't ever want to take for granted that all of us have a personal relationship with Jesus and thus to the Father. But let's be honest, if you're a parent, you understand that you give your kids a certain amount of respect that you don't give to other kids. I I, I would assume if you had kids, you had some of their friends in your house at some point. If this afternoon, one of my kids drop by the house and say, hey, Dad, I need the car because mine's not working. Can I borrow your car? I would flip them the keys and not even think about it. If one of their friends came in and said, hey, Pastor Dan, can I have your car? I'm not saying I wouldn't give it to them, but I would certainly want a lot more questions. What are you going to do with it? Why do you need it? What's wrong with your car? How come your parents don't have an extra car? I'd have all kinds of questions. 
But if it's my kid, I don't even think about it. Because they're my kid. I'm going to give them certain things. We have the incredible opportunity to enter the sovereign of the universe as Father if we have through faith accepted the gift that's offered. Do you know the Father? Secondly, do you pray? And I don't mean that lightly. I, I, I was thinking about this week, why don't I pray as much as I should? Now, maybe I'm speaking to somebody who is perfectly happy with your prayer life and congratulations, kudos to you. I, I'm not. Why don't I pray more? I, I, I've concluded that it, it comes down to one of two reasons. I'm not really convinced God will answer. Or, and I think this is the bigger one, I'm not really convinced I need help. One of the biggest struggles for me is I don't like to ask for help. I, I, I'm going to hit my head against the wall a thousand times before I finally break down and say, hey, could you help me? God, I got this. I'll take care of it. See, I, I'm convinced that one of the parts of prayer that is often missed is it is the greatest act of humility you will ever participate in. Because it says, God, I can't do this. I need you. Can I challenge you to try something this week? Would you routinely through the week ask yourself this question? Why am I not praying about that? I'm pretty confident you're going to face things that, let's be honest, you don't get it right the first time. Is prayer our natural default? Or is it just something we do because Pastor Dan said we had to? Because Jesus said we should. Because that's what Christians do. Or do I truly pray because I desperately need God to show up? Amen. I hope that that is the case. Father, I, I thank you for the chance this morning to go back to this incredible prayer. And God, I, I, I do pray that you would help us to understand our desperate need of you and that we would live each moment of each day in a constant awareness of your presence, of your power, and of your desire for us to ask. Help us to become people of prayer. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.